So today's passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It should be in your handout. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. I'm pretty sure that all of you believe that knowledge is power. Don't you? I mean, you're at university, aren't you? You're paying mega bucks to stuff your head full of knowledge, of all sorts of things. Studying obscure subjects like anatomy, so you can give names to every bone in the body, and I couldn't care less, actually, but I have other sort of knowledge that I like. History. I like to know the dates of when things happen. Where knowledge is what we're on about here at uni. But it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, is it? There's very few of us here for that. We think that knowledge has power. The power to win arguments, to expose ignorance and superstition and other people's stupidity. That's what we can do when we've got knowledge. We can win arguments. But it also has commercial value. That you're studying something, you can become a teacher. So other people who are willing to pay for that knowledge will ask you and pay you money so you can pass on that knowledge. Some knowledge has a lot of power. I don't know whether you recognise the photo of this guy, Marcus Hitchens. Earlier this year, a, a virus went around the world, a, a, a ransomware thing called WannaCry. You hear about that? It knocked out computer systems all over the world, especially many government ones. And this guy came up with a kill switch for the virus. That was worth a lot of money. People gave him awards of $10,000 just for coming up with it because he did so much good. But two months later, he was arrested for selling another ransomware virus on the internet. He's on uh, bail at the moment, still waiting for his court, uh, his court case to be decided. 
But there's money in that sort of knowledge. If you can get cyber security down pat, if you can work out how to do it, how to both kill it and also promote it, there's lots of money in it for you. That's knowledge, the power of knowledge or politics. If you know that somebody else has a skeleton in their closet, like their dualist citizen of another country, you've got power. But it's more than that. If you have knowledge of their private life, things that embarrass them, you can blackmail them. You can achieve all sorts of things simply with knowledge. Well, today we're looking at knowledge, Christian knowledge. And what the Apostle Paul wants to tell us, what God wants to tell us, is that knowledge can be dangerous. It's not just having a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. We all know that. Partial knowledge can be fraught with danger. This is somebody who's got full knowledge, good knowledge, right knowledge. That can be dangerous. You see that in verse 1. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Knowledge can be dangerous. Now, the issue that Paul is writing about to the Corinthian Christians is whether followers of Jesus can eat food offered to idols, food sacrificed to idols, to other gods. Now, for most of us, that's probably not a big issue. I presume you didn't get your lunch out today, if you've eaten it already, and thought, has this been sacrificed to an idol? I wonder if I can eat it. Anybody do that? No, it's not that sort of issue. But for converts to Jesus in first century Corinth, it was a huge issue, a daily pressing issue. Because they lived in a city where idol temples were dotted around the city. Everywhere you went, there were idol temples. And almost the whole population, as a regular part of life, brought offerings to the idols, to the gods. Because they wanted to win favour from the gods. The gods controlled your prosperity, the, the prosperity of your business, the health of your family. And so you offered offerings to them, normally food, particularly meat, because meat was, well, it was a luxury. And so to offer it was a real sacrifice. And the meat that was offered to idols in the idol temples, most of it found its way into the shops, into the butchers that you went to down the street. So when you bought some food, it probably had been, not necessarily, but probably had been offered to one of these gods. And so the question came for these Christians in Corinth, but we're not quite sure what the question was. <laughs> so typically, when you only hear one side of the conversation, they've written to Paul saying, about food offered to idols, what are we supposed to do? But we don't know what their question was. It could have been, when we go down to the butchers and buy some meat, should we ask whether it's been offered to an idol? And if it is, sort of not eat it. Or it could be a, a more pointed question. When our friends or family go up to one of those idol temples and offer something to the idols, can I be there? Can I take part in that? Now, they're quite different questions. Uh, It's more likely it was actually the second. We've dug up an invitation. It was actually written on a piece of parchment. But this is the sort of invitation, if you lived in first century Corinth, that you might have got. Uh, uh, Caramon, who's the name of a person, a a father actually, requests your company at the table of Lord Serapis, who's a god. At the Serapum, which is the temple to Serapis, tomorrow the 15th at 9 o'clock, That is, you're being invited to the birthday party of his daughter, but it's at the idol temple. Because that's where a lot of civic and social interaction happened. They were the restaurants of the day most of the time. And so a lot of things happened there. And as part of them happening there, there would be an offering to Serapis, just as part of the birthday party. Well, if you're a Christian, do you go or not? Now, for some of us in this room, that is a live issue. I've talked to quite a few people who've come from Asian backgrounds, Chinese, Indian, where family events, 
especially significant ones like weddings or funerals, are like that. They are religious, not just cultural. There is an offering to the gods. You burn incense to the gods. And the question is, if I'm a Christian, can I do that? And I've had a number of very difficult, emotional, heart-wrenching conversations with students about that issue. It is a live one for some of us. But let me also tell you that... Sorry, there's Sarapas on the right and his consort on the left and his dog with three heads at the bottom. This, this is the sort of shrine, though, that you will find in many homes from Asian backgrounds, but you also find it in most Asian restaurants, Thai restaurants, Chinese restaurants. This will be in the corner somewhere. You might not see it, but the food that you're eating has almost certainly been offered to an idol. Should you get up and walk out or not? When you go to Coles and you buy meat from Coles, do you know that quite a lot of the meat is halal? That is, it's been butchered in the right way for Muslims. The shahada has been said over it, a creedal statement said over the meat uh, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And you're buying that from Coles. Should you eat it? Or should you make sure it's not halal? It hasn't been dedicated to Allah if you don't think that Allah is really God. So it's not so remote from us. Well, Paul answers this issue, at least he begins to answer it in chapter 8, by saying that knowledge is central to the issue, the knowledge of the truth. So pick it up in verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know something. We know that an idol is nothing at all in all the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. He's saying, we as Christians know something. You live in a city full of idols, of gods, of lords. In the central piazza, the plaza of Corinth at this time, there were 12 temples to different gods, to different idols, and their statues were out the front. The pantheon of the Greek gods, Egyptian gods, Persian gods and Roman empress. And for most Christians in Corinth, they'd grown up believing in these gods, putting their hope in them. They'd lived in fear that if they offended one of these gods or more of them, that the world would, would collapse around them, the sky would fall in. And so there's a constant round of paying off different gods and choosing your favourite god to make sure that they can look after you. But the Christian gospel came and it was confronting and liberating at the same time. Because the gospel they heard from Paul was there aren't many gods. There's only one God. One true and living God who created everything. You get a picture, a sort of idea of what Paul might have said from what he says in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it. It doesn't come from different places and different gods. There's one God who made everything and therefore he's Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples. I mean, he created everything you made the temples out of. How could he live in a temple? And he's not served by human hands. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need money. Because he himself gives us what we need. It's the other way round. And they'd heard this confronting message and they'd believed it. There is one God. Verse 6. The Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There's God, one God only. The Father from whom all things come, he is the one who made us and he alone is our destination. And there's one Lord, Jesus, through whom all things exist, including us. 
Now, do you notice there, there's a, a complex monotheism. There's only one God. He said that a few times. But that one God is Father and Messiah, while still being one God. And everything this one God does as Father and Messiah is all one work. Everything you see around you has been made by the Father through the Son, through the Messiah. And it's all for the Father and for the Messiah. Now, what you've got here is the the raw materials that later Christians put together in the doctrine of the Trinity. Some people say Christianity made up the Trinity years later under Constantine in the 300s, but here's the raw material. You, You can't avoid what it's saying about monotheism being complex. It's there in a letter written in 55 AD, historically verifiable as 55 AD. Trinity isn't a later invention. It's just a way of putting together what was already there. But you might ask the question, what qualifies a God to be a God? And you can answer that two ways. You could say, well, anything that people worship is a God, isn't it? If I bow down and worship something, if I give it power, if I make a statue of it and and see that the statue represents that God, that power, and I honour the statue and I make offerings to it, that makes it a God or a Lord, doesn't it? Well, sort of, yes. I could do that with my phone, couldn't I? And I could plug it in every night and make offerings to it, charge it up so it gives it power and live by it the next day. I obey everything it tells me to do. I, I, I could do that. But is that really a God? Does that qualify it to be a real God? And the answer of Christianity is no, it doesn't. The thing that qualifies a person to be a real God is that he's the creator of everything. That is a God that's real. That's a God that has real power, that is worthy to be worshipped and honoured and lived for. After all, he made me and he made me for him. And if such a God is real, that created everything, then there are no other real gods, no other genuine gods. There might be things you call God, you might worship them as God, but they're not actually gods. They have no real power. Those statues are just statues. They're just marble. They're just bronze. And that knowledge, says Paul, is fundamentally liberating. It means you don't have to honour those other gods. They're just images. They're just idols. You can treat them like the birds treat them. You know how birds treat them, don't you? Or how the dogs treat them. Because there is no power, there is no God. And Paul thoroughly agrees. They have knowledge. They've got true knowledge. The universe is not full of gods all over the place, under every tree and on every mountain. No, there's only one God that truly qualifies as being God. Now, he's going to qualify this a little bit later in chapter 10 to say that behind idols are demons. And that's something we need to hold for then. That'll come up in a couple of weeks. But as he says in verse 4, an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's true. That's real knowledge. But how does that knowledge play out in real life? Because it can actually play out in two different ways. And that's part of the tension that's happening in the church in Corinth. How, How does this knowledge play out? See, one possibility is that if that's true, if idols are nothing, then just go for it. I can go and eat food dedicated to an idol because the idol's nothing. It's not a god. It's just a statue. That's all it is. It's just a piece of marble. I can go to the idol temple and the idol temple is just bricks. That's all it is. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing real about it. It's just bricks like my home is. It's nothing different 
And I can even make a sacrifice to an idol because the idol's nothing. All I'm doing is saying stupid words over a piece of meat and it really makes no difference. So just go for it. But others in Corinth are thinking something different. They're saying, well, if idols are nothing, then don't you dare go to the, the idol temple. Because we've come to know that what we used to believe, the allegiance we used to have, was abandoning, suppressing the truth about the living God and replacing it with idols, created things. And I've come to understand that that was evil, that was sinful. I shouldn't have been doing that. It was offensive to God and it was completely, it was made up, it was make-believe world. And I've been rescued from that. This is the sort of thing that, this is how Paul describes the Thessalonians. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers delivers us from coming God. Do you see what he's saying? To become a Christian is to turn from the idols to, to see that that was wrong as well as stupid and embrace the true and living God. Well, if you do that, surely you can't go back to the idol temple, can you? You've got to leave it alone. That, that was your old life. So do you see the tension of what you do with this knowledge? Can you feel it? And within the church at Corinth, people are taking these two different lines on how you use that knowledge. Paul takes three chapters to deal with it. We're looking only at chapter 8 today. The next two weeks we'll look at 9 and 10. So you need to come back for those and see the whole picture. But he begins with a gentle redirect. He says to those who want to go for it, even if you're right, I want to stop you in your tracks. He's going to come back and actually say, they're not right. But even if you are right, knowledge is not all that you think it is. I want to introduce you to a different way of thinking. And back in verses 1 to 3, he's laid some of that foundation about knowledge and love. Knowledge puffs up, he says, while love builds up. He's not against knowledge. Back in chapter 6, you were with us then, he keeps saying, don't you know? Don't you know your body's for the Lord, not for sexual immorality? Knowledge is really important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Knowledge is power, and power can be dangerous, especially knowledge without love. It just puffs people up with pride. It makes them arrogant. You've seen that, haven't you? You know that tutorial where one person has done the reading you're all supposed to do and they now show off. And their aim isn't to teach you something. Their aim is to make you feel terrible that you haven't done the reading. It's always someone else, isn't it? It's never you. It's always someone else and it just puffs them up. It makes people, or the quiz night, where somebody does know the answer to the question, how many bones are there in the human body? Or who was the King of England in 1873? And they know it wasn't a king, it was actually a queen. And everybody else looks stupid. And they're saying, I'm smart. But it happens too often in Christian circles. We have Bible knowledge. We know where to find Hezekiah. We have, which by the way, is not in the Bible. (laughs) We have theological information. We can unravel predestination. And we sprout it whenever we get a chance to win arguments, to justify my actions, to show off, to puff myself up. You've done it? I have. Too many times. Way, way too many times. Knowledge becomes something that just makes us arrogant. And it's always painful. It's always horrible. It's ugly. And yet it just keeps happening. 
Knowledge puffs up, but Paul says love builds up. The alternative to knowledge is not ignorance, it's love. Concern for the good of others, to grow them and strengthen them and encourage them. Knowledge itself is not the problem. Lack of love is the problem. And so he says in verse 3, But whoever loves God is known by God. He doesn't say, whoever knows lots about God is known by God. No, whoever loves God. Because love is central, it's, it, it's, it's essential for relationship. And it, if it is between us and God, so it is between us as people. And so verses 17 to 13, verses 7 to 13, sorry, is sort of a, a love for dummies. People who think they're smart, who've got lots of knowledge, but actually don't know what they should know, that love matters. So he says in verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as, as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Some lack not the knowledge of monotheism, there's only one god, but they lack the knowledge that some claim that that means we can just go for it. It doesn't matter what we do. So Paul says to them, you think your knowledge means you can do that. It's just food. There are no gods, so there's no issue. I can just participate in the idol temples any way I like. But Paul says there's others around who you think of as weak, because you're so strong, aren't you? And for them to do that is idolatry. It feels wrong. And Paul says, even if you're right, and he's going to say later they're not, then love should constrain your actions. And he says in verse 8, you know, sorry, uh, food doesn't bring you near to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat. That is, if you refrain from eating, you're no worse off. You haven't somehow distanced yourself from God because you haven't used all your freedom. Because food is irrelevant to God. Like Jesus said, it just goes in one end and out the other end. It doesn't defile you. It doesn't bring you closer to God or take you away from God. But he says to those who think they're strong, verse 10, if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat, watch sacrifice to idols? He asks them to imagine. Here they are. They're enjoying their freedom that they've got from their knowledge. But another Christian for whom idolatry is wrong, sees you. And because they see you there, and you can imagine this, can't you? They say, well, if, if he can do it, I can do it. And the social pressures on them from everybody, especially their family, will be to do it, to take part in these idol sacrifices. And they see a Christian, and I presume their non-Christian friends will then say, look, there's some Christians, they're doing it. Why are you being so uptight? Just loosen up a bit, come on, come and do it. And so against their conscience, knowing it's wrong, they go and do it. And in doing so, they sin. They return to the idolatry that Jesus has saved them from. They return uh, uh, to their pre-Christian sinful life. And in verse 11, he says, that will destroy them. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And in that verse, the horror is emphasised. They're your brother sister. They're not a stranger. They're, they're your family. Your new family that God has made you part of in Jesus. And he raises the stakes even, try, even higher. They're a, a brother or sister for whom Christ died. Jesus gave his life to save them at enormous cost. And deep, deep love. And you couldn't care? You're willing to treat them like trash? To do so is to sin against Christ in verse 12. 
You think it's not sinning. I've got knowledge. I can do this. There's nothing wrong about it. And Paul says, no. If you destroy your brother, you are sinning against Jesus. This is no small matter. You in your knowledge and in your arrogance, in flaunting your rights, don't care that your actions are destroying your brother or sister. And so Paul says for himself, verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again. I'll swear off it completely so that I won't cause them to fall. Well, what's God saying to us? God is alerting us that there are times when our knowledge is dangerous. Not a little bit of knowledge, but true, good, right knowledge can be dangerous. Because knowledge by itself is not enough. I need something more with it. Love. And that has much wider implications than just food offered to idols. And brothers and sisters, I want to say we need to take notice of this for two reasons, I think. We live in a very highly individualistic, rights-focused culture. And Paul's talking to that. Verse 9, be careful that the exercise of your rights don't become a stumbling block to others. So you've got the right to do pretty much anything you want to do. To watch what you want to watch, to go where you want to go, to eat what you want to eat, drink what you want to drink. And you have that in our culture and you have it as a Christian. And the mantra that we hear over and over again is, you can do anything you like as long as it's not hurting anybody else. Now, in one sense, Paul would agree with that. See, love says, I don't want to hurt other people. But the way Paul understands love is much wider than the way our culture understands it. You see, for us, I think, to not hurt anybody else is that I'm okay to do it as long as I don't intentionally, directly hurt somebody else physically or emotionally. We're just like little islands that butt up against each other and if I butt up against you and hurt you, I shouldn't do that. But everything else is okay. But for Paul, you're not an island. What you do often affects people unintentionally. Not in ways you meant to do it, but just in ways that happen in the reality of life. That's what verse 10 is about, isn't it? You're there having fun. You're not intentionally doing anything to harm somebody else, but another Christian sees you and that affects them. It changes their behaviour. They feel pressure from that. Peer pressure. Pressure from your behaviour and your choices. See, harm, in Paul's understanding, is much wider and deeper than just intended consequences of my action. It's all the unintended consequences as well. And it's not just physical harm or emotional turmoil. It's causing somebody to sin. It may may not be painful at all. But if it's sinful... I've done them real damage. And what Paul's warning us against, we see around us often, don't we? We see Christians, we are Christians, who encourage others by what we do to do things that in their mind are dodgy, aren't right. But they're doing it because maybe they're not quite so certain about it and they see us doing it and they feel the pressure. They feel the pressure already from their non-Christian world and friends and then they get the pressure from us because we're doing it. And so sometimes they go ahead and sin. Whether that's alcohol and drugs, whether it's racism and other sorts of remarks that belittle and bully people, whether it's the raunch culture or sexually unhelpful uh, material, whatever it might be, Paul says beware. Because what we do does affect others and therefore love people. In one sense, that's a big burden he's putting on us because he's saying, be sensitive to how what you do affects others. 
Don't let them come and tell you. You be aware of how it might affect others. But that was a burden our Lord Jesus willingly shouldered, didn't he? He took notice that we were heading for destruction and hell. And he could have said, well, I don't care. It's their fault. They're doing it. I'm not doing anything to send them there. I've got the right to enjoy my freedom. I'm not harming anybody. That's not what he did, did he? He came in love for us, sensitive to our needs, and gave his life for us. That's the first reason. We live in that sort of individualistic, rights-focused culture. The second is, if you're a uni student, you're in a bit of a time warp. Do you realise that? If you're in a situation where your knowledge is probably far outstripping your character, it's just, that's universally, isn't it? You spend all your time stuffing your head full of knowledge, whether that's Christian knowledge or other sorts of knowledge, but probably not spending all your time growing in love. The uni is not trying to teach you to love, is it? I don't think you've had any classes in that. But just stuff your head with the knowledge that will give you power. And we as CU easily follow suit, don't we? We all want and crave knowledge, so we come and get knowledge from CU. And we give it to you. Bible knowledge, theological knowledge, how-to knowledge. Brothers and sisters, be careful. It so easily leads to arrogance, where we bully people with knowledge. Whether that's in our evangelism, where we just go out to win the argument. Where ego trumps love. Or with each other, where we want to show off our knowledge. As if somehow knowledge is a mark of maturity, of status. Now, Paul's not against knowledge. Notice that. But it's not the end game. Love is. Do you you sort of feel unbalanced? Do you feel like your your knowledge far outstrips your love? Well, unfortunately, that's an occupational hazard. Got to be aware of it and then do something about it. What to do? Well, don't stop learning. Don't stop growing in knowledge. But do start loving. There's a terrific prayer that Paul prays in Philippians 1. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Because then you'll be able to discern what's best and do it. Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. But do you see where it starts? It starts with knowledge and love. Because love without knowledge is just sort of mushy sentimentality, isn't it? I feel nice towards you, but I haven't got a clue what to do that will help you. Knowledge without love breeds arrogance, as we've seen. What Paul prays for us, what I pray for myself, and I hope you pray for yourself, is that we would have love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight. That's what we need, isn't it? That's what Paul, that's what God would have us be and be like. One minute. Any questions you want to ask? Comments you want to make? Yeah. Hey. Um, so the, the final yes or no in terms of actually eating meat that's like halal or Yes or no. Yes or no. Um, uh, chapter 10 will answer that question in some detail and with some nuance. Uh, but if you can't wait, the, the, the answer is uh, buying food in the marketplace, don't ask, just eat. The earth is the Lord's fullness of, it's a gift of God, just eat it. But taking part in the actual idolatry, sacrificing to idols, don't. Okay, so that makes sense?
Um, now, there's a bit more nuance in that in chapter 10, but there, that's basically the answer. Um, so, sorry, Ben. I've, yeah. <laughs> so, if they did like a religious Thank you. Did you hear the question? If there is a religious element to an event I'm at, what, what do I do? Do I separate myself from it? I've, it's a complex issue because noticing this, it's not just about the right or wrong of what you do in itself. It's how others perceive it. And you've got to think about that as you try and work out. So what will others perceive by you taking part, burning the incense, whatever it is? Not just, is it right or wrong in itself? And sometimes you've got to ask people, but you probably will need to make a stand of some sort. That's a, that's a, sh- a reductionistic answer, but I think that's, that will get you on the right track. Okay, we finish? Why don't we pray this prayer? Father, may our, bound, our love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we might be able to discern what's best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory. Amen.